Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert webcast, where professionals need to know, say, and do, helping kids understand their ADHD. We are fortunate to welcome Dr. Jerome Schultz again for this special webcast for professionals. He is the author of Nowhere to Hide, Why Kids with ADHD and LD Hate School and What We Can Do About It. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available through the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, www.helpforadhd.org, under Ask the Expert in about two days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you used today to join us. The recording will be available about 30 minutes following our presentation. So about 30 minutes after our presentation, the recording will be available. If you are having difficulties or would like to talk with a health information specialist, you can call us at 1-800-233-4050. We may not be able to get to all of your questions today. If you would like to talk with us or have or have further information, again, you can give us a call Monday to Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. Again, at the same number, 1-800-233-4050, or online at www.helpforadhd.org. Finally, following today's webcast, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webcast series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest, Dr. Jerome Schultz. Dr. Schultz is a clinical neuropsychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School in the Department of Psychiatry. He specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of children and young adults with LD, ADHD, and other special needs. Formerly a middle school special education teacher, Dr. Schultz maintains a private neuropsychology practice in Lexington, Massachusetts. In addition to his clinical and educational work, Dr. Schultz serves as the international consultant on issues related to the neuropsychology and appropriate education of children and adults with special needs. For those of you who would like to ask Dr. Schultz a question following his presentation, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your GoToWebcast toolbar as indicated by the red arrow shown in this slide. All questions are moderated and we will get to as many as possible during the question and answer portion of the webcast. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's guest expert, Dr. Schultz, if you'd like to begin. Thank you a lot, Karen. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go here. And welcome to the audience. Thank you all for tuning in for this webcast. Uh, it's a, uh, Karen and I were talking a little bit earlier before we went on the air about this unusual experience of talking to my computer screen, but I'm going to really work hard to imagine a, a large group of people in the audience listening eagerly to what I have to say, and I'm hopeful that you'll ask a lot of questions uh, at the end of the, of the conversation uh, so that this, can, uh, this presentation can have as large an impact as it can. I'm especially interested in this topic as a professional who's worked for over 30 years with children, young adults, and adults with uh, ADHD and learning disabilities. And I'm, I have to say that I'm, I'm distressed about the mental health status of a lot of these kids in schools. I spend two or three days a week now uh, consulting in schools and observing kids and working with uh, teachers and other professionals who are working with them. And the issue is really not about uh, as much about education or educating these kids or how to teach them. But the issue more these days, and I'm sure some of you will agree with this and have seen this, the issue is the mental health status of these uh, kids. I'm seeing a lot of uh, very, very anxious kids, uh, kids who are, have, have more anxiety earlier in life. 
uh, kids who have ADD or ADHD and learning disabilities, um, but the pressure that these kids are under or the pressure that they put themselves under uh, is really creating uh, a situation that's, I think, very unhealthy for a lot of kids and for their teachers. So uh, we can talk about that as the session goes on, but I wanted to let you know my perspective on that. I, I sometimes say it's fairly easy to teach a child with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but it's a very difficult uh, challenge to work with the uh, social-emotional side of that problem. So I'm happy to have the opportunity to be talking to experts about this. Uh, what I th Some of this may be, uh, you may understand this already because you, you work in the field. Some of you are new to the field and some of you are seasoned veterans. Uh, but we know that ADHD is um, uh, kind of a three-part condition, a biopsychosocial condition, that it has an effect on health, it has an effect on emotions, it has an effect on relationship, and certainly it has an effect on, on learning. But there are secondary problems that, as I said earlier, I would like to focus on. Speaking of earlier, we know that the earlier in life we understand this condition, the more the earlier we identify it and and the, the more accurately we diagnose the condition, the earlier we can start providing interventions. Uh, and that means interventions not only for appropriate specialized education, but interventions to help kids uh, become emotionally and mentally healthier as they deal with this, uh, this unique difference. I get concerned about what I've come to call cumulative toxicity. That's the buildup of negative experiences over time. Our brains are exquisitely well uh, equipped to remember bad times because, after all, that's what keeps us safe. If our brains didn't remember bad times, like tigers running into our caves back in primitive times, uh, or uh, threats to our survival, uh, we'd be very, very vulnerable. Uh, so, but this negative stuff doesn't go away. It builds up and it creates kind of a, 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 an attitudinal toxicity, also biological predisposition to be more stressed as you go through life. So my vote is to get in there early, do what's necessary, do what's right, and try to uh, uh, keep some of the emotional consequences of having ADHD uh, minimized as early as possible. The good news is that for a lot of people, uh, ADHD uh, is, is an asset. It's not a liability. Uh, we know that we, there are a lot of CEOs of major corporations who have ADHD as part of their own um, personal profile, and uh, these are men and women who are smart, uh, quick, they are not risk aversive. They make decisions about things without thinking too much about the bad things that could happen. And as a result, uh, there's a pretty good number of folks um, who have made a lot of money with that profile. Unfortunately, that same profile of being quick and witty and making decisions without thinking about it uh, is not necessarily appreciated uh, if you're not leading your own business. Uh, that is in schools or in uh, in uh, either elementary school or middle school or high school, some of the traits that are associated with the condition uh, are seen as impediments, are seen as negatives. But even with that, uh, people with ADHD can have a very uh, positive uh, experience, especially when they understand themselves a bit. So let's try to maximize the assets uh, or think about that theme as we move forward. I think it's important to take what I would call and others would call and many of you would call a strength-based approach. That is, let's look at what kids can do right, what they can do well, what they can do that gives them that joyful experience of feeling success. And when we, find, when we identify those strengths, it becomes a little easier for us to create other situations that might be challenging for these individuals, but in fact in which they can be uh, um, successful and feel very positive about it. So let, let's keep on a, a let's keep a positive uh, attitude as we go through this discussion. You know that the three kind of primary characteristics of ADHD change over time with age, and that's important. Sometimes we see kids when they're very young. Obviously, the kids in preschool and kindergarten uh, tend to be impulsive, tend to be hyperactive, tend to be inattentive. 
the problem I see, I've got a, a couple of the school districts that I work in are seeing an increase in referrals in kindergarten, at the end of preschool, in the beginning of kindergarten, for comprehensive neuropsychological evaluations to do testing of little kids who are displaying these three characteristics because people think they have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Well, the, the diagnosis is simple. The diagnosis is these are children. Uh, so I think we have a, an educational environment that requires uh, uh, thoughtful, reflective thinking. It doesn't require hyperactivity. It requires attentiveness. So little kids who ex exhibit these traits very early often find themselves in an environment that requires skills that they don't yet have, uh, and they get labeled early, and the consequences of that label uh, last for a very long time. So we have to think about how uh, these three characteristic qualities of ADHD show up in different ways over time. Uh, what's important to me is, in terms of a discussion of social-emotional functioning, is that the self-concept of these kids and young adults is really defined not by what they do, but it's defined by the reactions of other people to what they do. So those of us who are in the helping professions, whether we're teachers or psychologists or social workers or uh, other uh, specialists like speech and language therapists and so forth, we're in a position to react to the kid's behavior in a way that helps them understand it more and its impact on other people. Uh, but we have to do this in a way that lets them generalize what we teach them so that when they go out to school, they're really uh, more aware of uh, looking at themselves through other people's eyes, not so they can change and become what other people want them to be, but so that they can realize that certain behaviors have a certain impact on their environment and they have some control over that. I think that's the key to success here. Uh, we know that ADHD-related factors have an impact on emotion, and the list that you see on the screen before you describes some of those things. Kids with ADHD and young adults tend to be frustrated more easily. They tend to be disorganized. Uh, they may do uh, uh, things that are intrusive in social situations uh, in an attempt to get in control of a situation that might be out of control. They might look like they're bossy or trying to uh, take jurisdiction over uh, other people. These are kids and adult, young adults who may have difficulty taking turns or sharing. Uh, they may have difficulty reading the room, uh, interpreting social cues. What's true about this population of kids is that they have predictable unpredictability. We know that that's going to happen. Uh, a lot of people living and working with kids are surprised when the kids do really well one day or one week and then all of a sudden that flips on its, uh, on its underside and people can't understand it. I think if we, if we understand and accept the fact that these kids are predictably unpredictable, it becomes a little easier to, to roll with those times when they are. But if you do these things, if you're impulsive and you have difficulty sharing, you become often humiliated, you become embarrassed a lot, and then we're dealing with a population of individuals who are working to cover their embarrassment and cover their humiliation. And this just gets layer upon layer of, of uh, um, complexity, and, and it makes it difficult to tease out. But we'll, uh, we'll look at this a little more closely. Remember that the emotional level of some kids and young adults with ADHD may be delayed. We know that there is brain research that suggests that, that some individuals with ADHD, uh, mature, their brains mature more slowly in certain ways than other kids. So if we have age-appropriate expectations for kids whose brains aren't quite ready to do the expected activity, there's going to be some friction there. So we really have to understand that it's not an excuse for these kids, but it certainly is an explanation uh, for why it takes some of these kids, and I use the words kids generally to mean kids from preschool to middle school to high school and into college. Uh, this is an explanation for why some of these kids have difficulty living up to the expectations of the world in which they live. If they understand that this might be the case, not that they're dumb or stupid or inadequate, but their brains may need a little more time to grow up so they can handle some of these cognitive demands of their environment, I think that helps them have a better and more healthy self level of self-understanding. You all know as I do, that ADHD doesn't come all alone in its own box. It very often uh, comes associated with other conditions that uh, exacerbate the attentional problems, uh, make them worse, 
uh, or interact with the attentional problems or the hyperactivity uh, or the impulsivity that we see. We know that uh, uh, 30 to 50 percent of kids uh, and young adults with ADHD have comorbid uh, learning disabilities, and then we have to look very carefully at the interplay between inattention, impulsivity, hyperactivity, and processing difficulties, which are characteristic of learning disabilities. We know that anxiety plays a role here. Sometimes it's a question, a chicken or egg question, which came first, the anxiety or the attention problems. We know that if somebody has a primary diagnosis of anxiety, it's going to be difficult for them to focus and sustain attention. So as diagnosticians and clinicians, we have to be aware of the issue of the, what's the primary disability or what's the thing at this moment in time that's causing the greatest uh, consequences. Depression can coexist with uh, with ADHD. Again, we look at the chicken and egg question. People who are depressed, people who have bipolar disorder, other serious forms of emotional disturbance also have uh, attention problems. It's a hallmark characteristic of a lot of psychiatric conditions. So again, it's, an, it's a matter for us of identifying and helping the, the student, the client, the patient understand what the primary problem is and how to develop skills to cope with the primary problem so that it doesn't become compounded and more severe. It's really very, very important to differentially diagnose these kids. And as I said earlier, uh, helping the, the student, the client, the family understand whether ADHD is a primary symptom or whether, in fact, it's secondary to another condition or uh, several comorbid conditions. It, this is a soapbox that I get on very often, but I think uh, that we don't teach kids about their own conditions well enough uh, in order to have them learn how to deal with it themselves. Uh, kids with ADHD have a lot of adults around them uh, who are uh, paid to provide services to them, to help remind them of different ways to behave or perform or act or how to teach them how to behave or perform or act. And as a result, we have a lot of external controls uh, in kids who really need to develop a greater sense of internal control. So sometimes our treatment uh, may be actually adding to the problem. So we have to be conscious of making sure we step back from our sometimes intrusive involvement with kids and let them practice the skills that we're trying to teach them and helping them to own those uh, skills themselves. Uh, a, a lot of people that you and I deal with, uh, there may be teachers in the audience now, and I hope so, uh, but there are people in our professional field, whether we're in psychology or social work or education uh, or speech and language therapy, there may be people who are undereducated or miseducated about ADHD. So I make a plea in this presentation to make sure that those of us who are responsible for the care and treatment of these kids really become the experts that they uh, need and that they deserve us to be. I think it's important to realize I'm not a physician, I'm a neuropsychologist, a PhD level clinician, so I don't give medication, but I think we have now enough research to suggest that a combination of therapy and medication may help to accelerate progress in a lot of kids with, uh, uh, with ADHD, and I think that's an important thing to, uh, to consider. Let's move on to look at things uh, at home. And in our work with families, there are several things that I'd like to encourage us to, uh, to consider. We have to consider that we want families that are supportive of the, the, our clients, especially if we're dealing with young children, but we also in these families understand that there's a lot of frustration, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of tired people and a lot of, a lot of tired parents, a lot of tired brothers or sisters living in the family, in the household of a kid who's hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive. Uh, that very uh, rea that reality of the fatigue and frustration that's in many homes has an impact on the kids. Remember what I said earlier that uh, self-concept is developed in these kids based on what other people think of them and see them doing. So if these are little kids who tire their teachers out, who run circles around them behaviorally and uh, make their heads spin, uh, whether that's teachers or parents, they're getting eye rolls, they're getting sighs, they're getting body language that starts to send messages to, to kids that, that helps them define, I think in a bad way, their own identity. So we have to be careful about uh, that and we have to, as clinicians, make sure we help the family uh, develop and uh, the strength that they need to, to stay neutral, to stay even, to stay strong in the presence of sometimes the chaotic, sometimes chaotic behavior of little kids. 
what if there's more than one person in the family with ADHD? We know that this is a biologically uh, connected condition, that there's a stronger likelihood that a first-degree biologic relative has ADHD if a child has it. That means a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, an aunt or an uncle uh, might have this condition too. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. If a dad has had ADHD and is very successful, or a mom has had ADHD and she's used it to her advantage and become, um, uh, and she's happy as an adult, that's really good to have a role model. On the other hand, if you have a parent or a sibling who's had a negative experience with ADHD, that kind of muddies the water for the next kid who comes along with this condition. So we really have to make sure that in our assessment of the child, we look at the family and the regard they have for this condition, which we know of as ADHD. Think about, too, if both parents aren't aligned in their perception, their understanding, uh, their tolerance, if you will, for the condition, or if grandparents or aunts and uncles have different views about this. How many times have we heard a parent or say, well, my parents think I'm just spoiling him. I, they don't understand how frustrating it is. So I think we have to make sure in our assessment of family, uh, and parent, uh, family, family life and parenting styles and grandparenting styles, uh, we have to assess the degree of alignment there is among these folks, because unless we address that, there's going to be uh, do, what I would call dueling opinions, different opinions that are going to get in the way of this. What's the impact of ADHD on the family life? Sometimes kids can't go out to a restaurant because they, they behave impulsively, they cause difficulties, other siblings don't want to go with them. These kids might not be able to go to temple or church because their behavior is getting them in trouble and it's an embarrassment to the family. So you really have to understand what the impact is on family life. And, uh, it's really important in this situation not to blame the primary uh, client, that is the child in this case for the family's problems, but how to pull the family's energies and resources around this child to support him or her so that they can all have a better time, a, a more fun time, a more appropriate time when they step outside the, the family home and, in, and move into the community. The impact of these kids off, they, one of the impacts that these kids have on families is the time it takes to take them to us, to their therapist, to their specialized treatment, to go to the doctor for medication, to get a prescription filled. Those things also cost money. The kids with ADHD can place some emotional stresses on families, uh, both in, time, in terms of time or money. Uh, intimacy is a factor that's not often enough looked at. Two, a husband and wife are, who are too tired at the end of the day to have an intimate relationship with each other are parents that can uh, come apart, that can, be, that can drift apart. Uh, parents, if there are two parents in the family or two caregivers in the family, they need to have enough energy and time to enjoy each other's company and strengthen each other. Sometimes kids take away from that opportunity to be close to someone you love and, and find that person, use that person as a support when times are tough. Uh, and that results in, in both uh, adults in the family sometimes feeling alone. They're isolated from their community. If their kids aren't welcome in the neighborhood or aren't welcome in social circles or birthday parties, and this is, these are families who really who circle the wagons around themselves, and it can be a very uh, lonely experience. And uh, you know, I think it's really important, and we'd all agree as mental health specialists, that we need other people in our lives to help us feel full and whole, so that we can help our uh, our kids. And uh, in terms of uh, parenting and life at home, a family that really deals with this well can experience a lot of joy. Uh, a lot of these kids with ADHD, a lot of kids with ADHD are funny, fun, uh, uh, exciting to be around, and uh, can add to uh, uh, the sense of enjoyment that a family feels as, as a unit, and an extended family feels as a unit. And I think it's important that we try to make sure, uh, do an assessment of what I would call the joy quotient to ask families, how much time do you have fun? How much time does your son or daughter who happens to have this condition have fun? How much time does your college student with this condition have fun? Uh, because unless we can build that into the equation, it can become a pretty depressing uh, existence, especially with all of us hanging around waiting to help. So what can we say as professionals? What can we do? Let me give you a couple things that have, that have been helpful to me. I think one of the things that we must do is to educate these parents, these families, these kids, these young adults about their own condition. In order to take responsibility for their own self-management and their own futures, uh, kids and young adults have to really understand the condition and how it impacts them. 
they can't say, oh, it's the old ADHD again acting up. They have to say, you know, I have this condition. It's called ADHD. It's been diagnosed and verified by several people, and it has this impact on these things in my life. And, and you know what? I have been taught, and I know what to do about these things. That's a, that's a positive reaction, which I'd like to hear from more kids with ADHD, but they can often cannot give us even the first answer. If you say to them, explain, my, explain your ADHD to me, a lot of kids will say, I'm just a wild and crazy kid. I'm really hard to control, and I find it hard to control myself. Uh, we don't have enough kids in our world who can say, yeah, I have this condition, and sometimes it's uh, a challenge for me, but I really have the skills to work around it and work through it most of the time. I can be in charge of it. I can be in control of it, even though I have it. I can even embrace it. I can enjoy it. It doesn't have to be uh, an albatross uh, around my neck. But I think we have an important job to do to educate kids in a developmentally appropriate way about what this thing called ADHD is for them and how, what they can do about it. We can say things to them like, you know, this condition you have may cause you to be different from some other kids or some other young adults, but it's up to us, you and your family and me, your therapist, your counselor, to determine whether it's really a disability. You know, it doesn't have to be a disability. It can be a difference, um, but it doesn't have to cause a major impact on your life. In fact, we're going to help you figure out how to make it an asset. I think that's a nice way to approach it. We have to be active as helping professionals. We have to provide very clear and explicit instruction to kids and young adults and their families about the condition uh, in order for them to know how to navigate their world. We can't be passive uh, uh, therapists who sit in an office and say, well, tell me how your week was week after week after week. I, I'm uh, uh, committed to the idea of being an aggressive and assertive helper for these folks because time uh, flies by very quickly. And unless they have so someone in their lives who gives them clear and firm guidance and instruction in how to get around these hurdles or work through them, uh, they languish and they linger too long in the misery that can be ADHD, and I think that's unfortunate. We can say to these kids, you may have to work harder and smarter, harder and smarter than other kids to have the kind of life you deserve and you want. And you know what? I think I can help you with that. I've worked with a lot of kids and a lot of families, and I've been pretty successful helping them help themselves. And that's the message that I'd really like to have all of us say to kids. We have to work with parents and with teachers and help them think about the importance of giving kids the opportunity to be successful Giving kids, them, giving kids the opportunity to save face when they've made a mistake, to help them teach kids how to repair and rebuild relationships that might have been impacted uh, by the ADHD or even broken because of the ADHD. And I have that in front of you. You'll see the term objects. I mean, sometimes these kids knock things over. Sometimes they break things. Um, I think it's important to have kids learn how to fix things and learn how to pay for things and repair things because that's an important life lesson and uh, it's realistic. And I think that's an important word to use in our work with these kids. I think it's important for us as professionals to be public relations agents for our, the kids that we see in our, in our caseload. We have to find these kids' assets. We have to keep them in the forefront of people's minds, and we have to really make sure that kids think first of what they're good at, not what they're bad at, because that becomes their default setting too often. If they think from that point of view, if they start thinking that I'm, I'm bad, I'm incompetent, I'm inefficient, I'm, in, I'm impulsive, all those negative terms then begin to rule their life and their behavior, and I think that's not a good thing. We have to say things, of course, like, you know what, I believe in you. I like the way you're thinking about this. Not so much I like what you did, but I like the way you're thinking about it because that, when we stop working with them or when they go back home to their homes after they come to our offices, that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to think about things in a different kind of way. I think it's realistic for us to say, you know what, you, like anybody else, are going to make some mistakes. You might make more of them because you're impulsive or because you may not be focusing your attention well enough. But the key to your success is not trying to prevent mistakes as much as it is for you to understand how to handle them. Because when you do, 
And when you handle your errors with skill and with self-confidence, the next thing you do will be done from a greater position of strength and competence. And I think that's important. I know I'm talking a little fast here, but hopefully you, you, if you need to, you can go back in after the session is over and look at the slides and listen to what I've said today. But I've, I feel like I've got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to do that. Let me talk to you specifically about what I think we need to do. Some of this is a recap. Some of this is new information. I think we need to educate the family and other people who work with this child about this condition and its impact. If you sit at a team meeting at a school for a child and you sense that people around the room have a difference, differences of opinion, have differences of opinion about this kid or the condition, some people think it's a cop-out, some people think this kid is using it as an excuse, some people think, oh, uh, they understand it well because they have the condition or their kids have the condition, it's important to get people around the table to agree about the nature of this condition, which is sometimes elusive and difficult to diagnose. I think for us it's important to keep learning about new developments in the field of ADHD, uh, learn about new strategies yourself so you can teach those to your clients and make sure that they understand what it is uh, uh, that science is telling them about the condition that they have. Other things we can do, I think this is sometimes important. These kids sometimes need what I call a therapeutic familyectomy therapeutic parentectomy. They, they, it's really great for these kids to go to a program after school or go to a summer camp if they can afford it or they can get the financial resources to do it. That not only help them deal with the ADHD, but help them have fun. These kids, as I said before, if, they, if we look at the joy quotient, it's often very, very low in these kids. So to have these kids go out and, uh, and, and be in an environment where being impulsive and excited and hyperactive leads to adventure and fun in a controlled environment, what a nice thing for these kids. So we can help them think about how they use their out-of-school time. If a family has come to us for help, I think it's incumbent upon us, and this goes without saying probably, but I have to say it here, that we're well prepared to, to, to provide them with information that represents best practices in the field. If kids come to us because of ADHD, we really have to be a specialist in ADHD. Uh, I think the criteria that I would use for it for a clinician, if I were training a young clinician today, I said, you have to know enough about this field to go out and give a presentation to other people in your field that teaches them something about it they don't know or they haven't thought about. So keep that criteria in mind. It's important for us to understand the relationship of therapy and medication. It's also uh, important for us to understand what the de desired effects and side effects are supposed to be of medication that kids are taking so we can give feedback to physicians, psychiatrists, or pediatricians who are prescribing medication. And we have to also understand the importance of treating the conditions that may be si sitting side by side with ADHD. Regarding medications, parents have very strong feelings uh, often about medications, and they, they have a right to be cautious and concerned when putting chemical substances into their children's bodies. But we have to keep parents informed about the potential benefits of medications and the side effects so that they, we can supplement the work of the prescribing physician by doing this, because generally we have more time to do this than the prescribing physicians do, just by virtue of the nature of our practice. We have to work often and actively with other people on the treatment team, not only the prescriber, but teachers and parents and the kids to maximize the impact of treatment. The more we do, the more aggressive we are in this regard, the more help these kids will get and the, and the uh, healthier they'll get as well. I think it's important for us to work out of our little boxes. We, I want to I want to have all of us working with kids with ADHD encourage team encourage teamwork. The teacher, the therapist, parent, and kids get together on these things. If everybody's committed to the same goals in helping a child or young adult become more efficient, more effective, more satisfied as an individual, uh, things will move faster and uh, with with greater success. I talked about this one already, but I just want to remind us that it's important to look for differences differences in the perceptions of people, uh, teachers, kids, parents, and help them come to uh, some kind of common agreement through education or through information that we share with them when we meet with them. Remember and reinforce what I've come to call the three C's, competence, confidence, and control. If you the greatest the, the 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 definition of being in a stressful situation is to be have a sense of being not in control. 
if you're competent in what you do, that is, if you learn to do schoolwork well, and you, you do it well consistently, that builds a sense of confidence. Those things lead to a better sense of control. And the greater the sense of control is in the kids that we work with, the less stress they're under. And be, this is important to me because this is the best way to assuage that stress, to quiet that stress, which actually makes the brain work less efficiently. We talk about kids with executive functioning problems. For me, executive function aren't a specific kind of disability, but rather they're the consequence of a brain that's not working very efficiently or effectively, and stress is one of the major culprits there. So if despite the very best efforts of a very good school, despite your very best efforts as a mental health professional or uh, an ancillary support personnel uh, person, a uh, speech and language therapist, a uh, physical therapist, occupational therapist, if things aren't getting better, and I, I lay this out there for you to consider, in six months, then something isn't right. Something We have to do something different, especially if we're talking about kids who are developing fairly rapidly. Six months becomes a very, very long time. So we need to be creative about our approaches. Don't flip-flop from one approach to another, but if six, in six months things don't look like they're getting better, circle your wagons again with everybody working with this child and uh, talk about what could, be, what could be done to maybe make things more effective. The bottom line is I think that having ADHD shouldn't mean that a kid has to live in sadness and misery. That's just uh, that's unacceptable uh, for me. It's, doesn't, it's, it's not as easy to, to correct that problem as I might be implying here, but it's really important. Uh, I think a child's mental health is way too precious to leave to hope and chance. We really have to be active change agents in the life of these kids. And, you know, besides the parents of these kids or the grandparents or the family, we may be the most important person in this child's life because we can remain objectives, we, objective, we can remain impartial, and we can be focused on what, doing what's right and helping the family keep on that path. Well, I think that takes us uh, to the end of the formal part of the presentation, and uh, uh, Karen's going to take back over the microphone and give you an opportunity to ask me some questions uh, virtually in or in reality. So thank you very much. Here we go. Well, thank you, Dr. Schultz, and I think this has been really informative and very helpful. We have a, a lot of questions that have come in. So we're going to start now with Debbie's question. And she was saying, using a strength-based approach, such as you mentioned earlier, what are some ways that you, the clinician, could explain, to explain some of the less desirable behaviors and characteristics of ADHD to young clients? How would you, again, with using the strength-based, how do you explain this to children and young people? That's a great question, uh, and it's a very practical question. One of the things I like to do in my own clinical practice is have kids use or create cartoons with me. I might draw the figures, or they might draw the figures. And if you remember the, the magazine highlights for children, there's a, a goofus and gallant feature uh, where you have the kid who thinks who acts one way and another kid who acts another way. I think comparing and con contrasting appropriate or expected behaviors with inappropriate or in unexpected behaviors um, in a fun way uh, helps kids learn that. Uh, I think it's really important to try to do some of this work in displacement. That is, don't just talk about what the kid did right or wrong, but talk about what other kids do in situations like this and then lead the kid into a discussion about, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been in that situation? These kids learn very early in life to be defensive, and when you're talking about their flaws, they tend to shut down and close you out. So I think using puppets and doing silly, fun things with them to keep their faces smiling and their brains lit up is a very effective way to do that. hope that's a helpful answer. I think that is helpful. Um, our next question comes from Beth, and kind of to follow up on that, do you have any suggestions as to good ways to help teach kids how to self-regulate? Well, I had the opportunity one time to learn how to do hypnosis, and I'm not suggesting that everybody run out and take a hypnosis course, but kids, especially young ones, are very, very suggestible, and it doesn't really require formal hypnosis, but a lot of times when I've had kids in a therapy situation, for example, I would try to teach them how to uh, close their eyes and imagine that they're, that they're looking at a screen, and, and uh, a TV screen or a, a movie screen, and I try to get them to imagine 
imagine things either moving on or off the screen. If they're things that are of interest to the kids, I put those, have them put those on the screen. Could be a race car, could be a cartoon figure that they like, could be an elephant, could be an animal, and then have them uh, think the image off the screen. Once I know that they, and I have them just raise their finger or their thumb when they've been able to do it, most kids are able to take that suggestion and follow it. Once I know they can do that, that is stop their thinking, control their thinking, and, and manipulate their thinking in a way that is uh, very effective, then I can have the discussion with them about uh, what that means to control yourself, to control your impulse, to self-regulate. Those words don't mean too much to a, to a little kid. But if you have a kid, another strategy that I've used is to have kids act really wild and crazy. I'd play some loud music, and we'd jump up and down together, and then I would have kids, I'd turn the music off and say, stop. Uh, for us to say to these kids, you need to settle down or you need to self-regulate is very, very hard for them because they really, a lot of these kids don't even know what that feels like. So we have to really put them in that position and say, that's what it means when I say self-regulate or calm yourself down or you need to settle down. And then we have to let them practice doing that in the privacy of our own therapy spaces or our own offices and have them tell us that they're in that space. They really have to understand that. Self-regulation to me means getting control over your body and your mind and your breathing. And those are all exercises we can do in a physical way with kids. Uh, and then bri bridge from the physical to the mental. So that's uh, there are a couple things that that I uh, that I hope are, uh, head you in the right direction. I think those are some really good suggestions. I like the idea of uh, getting a little worked up and, as you said, wild and crazy, and then saying stop and having that experience of of stopping and understanding the feeling of that. Well, we've got several participants who have questions about comorbidities, co-occurring conditions, specifically autism spectrum and ODD. And both of these can occur with ADHD. And they're wondering if you have any suggestions on how to explain these co-occurring conditions to a child in relationship to their ADHD. You know, helping a child understand what is the ODD and that impulse, and what is ADHD and that impulsivity. It's a really good question, and it goes back to the the importance of making sure that we're looking at the primary uh, diagnosis here. I, in my uh, over 35-year career, I've seen a lot of kids who had diagnosis of ADHD and and even kids who have been given medication for it when they actually have uh, um, another condition that gives rise to the symptoms of ADHD. So it's really important to look at that. And if you have a kid uh, who's on the autism spectrum, for example, who has difficulty focusing and sustaining attention, uh, it really begs the question of whether that's really ADHD uh, or, or autism. If kids have both of those conditions and they're given medications to treat the ADHD and it helps them, that can be fairly diagnostic, but I think you really have to be careful about looking at the specifically or, or especially at the presence of anxiety in kids with autism spectrum disorders because the anxiety itself makes them look like they have ADHD. How do you explain it to them? I think you focus on the behaviors. You know, you say, here's a task that you're typically required to do in school or outside of school. How easy or how difficult is it for you to do that task? And if kids say, oh, that's really easy, then you create a, a situation where that task, where they have to do it in front of you. Let's go out, let's take a walk. Let's walk through the school building. Let's go outside my office. Let's take a walk around the community. Let's play this game. And this game is designed to put you in, a, uh, essentially, it's, this is adult language here, but in a simulation of that, of that condition. And then you can really say to a kid, you know, you said you had really great control over yourself when you were in a frustrating situation. And look what just happened. Did you, do you feel you had a, a great control over yourself in that situation where you couldn't figure out the problem that I presented you with? I think we have to simulate the conditions where the, where the problem behaviors, if you will, occur, and then process that in the moment with kids. We can't necessarily expect them to easily transport that knowledge into the real-life situation they go back into, and that speaks to the importance of talking with teachers and other people working with them to help them give the same kind of feedback about the same kind of behavior. So if we know a child is trying to do, develop self-control and uses the behavior in the classroom, that a teacher has to really work hard to catch that child at practicing that skill. 
the, you ask about ODD or oppositional defiant disorder. I think that's a curious diagnosis. There are there are kids certainly who have that diagnosis, but if you're trying to protect yourself against the shame of performing in a way that you might not, uh, in which you might not do something uh, very well, to be defiant or to be oppositional as a way to protect yourself from the public embarrassment or shame of that behavior uh, makes me also sometimes question that diagnosis. I can't dispute that the person who's asking the question is working with a child who has clearly earned that diagnosis, but I really think it's important to look at l what the symptoms really uh, represent. Helping a child understand both, again, I would go back to the behaviors. Can you do the behavior that this task or this class of task uh, requires of you, the child says, no, I can't, there's the door to say, would you like some help with that? If the child says, yes, I can, then you have to create the situation or bring in stories of the times during the week that the child has not been able to do it and say, let's go back, let's replay that tape. Is there a different way you could have done that? And then have them think about next week or tomorrow. If that happens again, what are you going to do? This takes more practice than learning how to play a piano. And I think that's something that we we forget, we forget the practice aspects of it because a lot of these kids are are making mistakes and getting caught in their mistakes rather than doing things right and getting praise for doing it right. We need to be able to turn that situation around through giving them structured practice. As you could tell, I could go on for days like this, but I realize we've got a time limit, so I'm going to stop. Thank you. I think uh, your explanations and your suggestions are very helpful here. Kind of following on these questions, Nina was wondering if you have a simple way to explain to kids how their brains function. As we know, ADHD along with ODD and other similar conditions are brain-based disorders. What would you suggest in helping kids understand that this is a brain difference? Are you still there? Yeah. Yes. Karen, yes. can you? Okay. Uh, I think I, I'm I'm I, I'm a, a strong proponent of having kids. I'm hearing the phone go in and out. Are you sure you can hear me? Yes, Doctor. I'm right here. I'm sorry that uh, there seems to be a glitch with the phone system. Do you need okay. me to repeat the question? Uh, no, I got my short-term memory is still that good that I remember it. Uh, I'm oh, a big proponent of having kids understand how the brain works. So depending on the age of the child, I, I'm waiting for somebody in a middle school, for example, to tell me that they've done a lesson on brain functioning and which parts of the brain are responsible for which behaviors and have kids in a middle school look at the impact of stress on brain function. But I think that even for little kids to to draw a picture of the major centers of the brain. You have to be careful. You don't want to freak little kids out by thinking that they've got this really uh, complex organ sitting under their skull. But I think it's important to say there are parts of the brain that are responsible for these kinds of things. Let's, let me draw a picture of it. For example, to say you know, the, the front part of your brain, you don't have to use scientific language, but the front part of your brain is, is the part of your brain that helps you think about thinking. So let me give you a really complex task, a difficult task, and let's make that part of the brain wake up and help you come up with an answer. Um, so you give a child a, a chess move or you play a game or you do a card trick and the child figures the trick out and you say, put your hand in the, on your forehead. Right behind your forehead is a part, in your brain, a part of your brain that helped you solve that problem. You can actually keep a discussion going with your brain to say, the front part of my brain helped me do that better. Um, I think the other way to do it is to say to little kids, I'm going to give you something to do, and tell me what your brain is telling you about this task. And it's kind of a trick because you want the kids to say things like, oh, Jerry, you can do this really well, or, or oh, Jerry, you're going to fail at this. And if you get kids to help you understand what messages they're getting about the task and you attribute those to their brain, you can say, let's see if we can change your brain's opinion about that. Let's, let's do something maybe a little simpler and let you feel success, and now tell me what your brain is saying about it. And the kid says, oh, my brain is saying, you know, you, worked, uh, you made the task a little simpler and I was able to do it. And then you make the task a little more difficult, and you get the brain, get the dialogue going with the brain. It's not so much about understanding brain anatomy, but it's helping kids appreciate the importance of listening to the messages they get from inside their head that tell them whether or not they're going to be successful. 
Too many of these kids get messages that say, you can't do this, and we need to help them internalize the message that says, I think I can do this, or I'm going to give this one a try. Wonderful. I think that's, you know, I think that I will give this a try is very much an empowering statement for a child. Well, we have a question now from Susan, and uh, she is referring back to when you said that ADHD is different, not, not a disability. And she was wondering, how do we help kids embrace being different when others see that difference as a negative? A good question, Susan. I think that one of the ways I like to do that is to let kids understand that there are people in the, the public eye who have a condition called ADHD and who are um, not only in spite of it, but because of it, uh, wildly successful. You run a little bit of risk kind of parading out the famous people with ADHD because those are hard acts to live up to sometimes. But at least if kids know that there are people who have the same condition they have and they have been able to do things about it to help them be successful, that can, that can be very comforting. Um, I think, uh, again, I'd focus on behavior. I would say to kids, what, what kinds of things are really easy for you? What kind of things do you find that are, um, are simple for you? And if you can get a kid to say, well, I solve problems really quickly, or I'm a quick thinker, um, take impulsivity and flip it on its other side. You know, what does that mean to be impulsive? That means you have the ability to think or move or act quickly. What kind of professions are there that require that skill? I can think of dozens of professions that require that skill. Um, take a t look at hyperactivity. What does it mean to be able to move from place to place quickly? What, what animals do that? What people do that and get rewarded for it, both in terms of their accomplishments or even their, their survival? Um, uh, so we talk about impulsivity, hyper, hyperactivity. It's a little harder to talk about the inattentiveness, but if you, if you look at ADHD not so much as being inattentive, but really being able to hyper-focus on things at that moment, they may not be the things your teacher wants you to focus on, but most kids don't have an attention deficit. They have, di they have difficulty directing their attention and focusing it at, at the time they need to focus it on and uh, on things that other people want them to focus it on. So I think, again, looking at the asset or the strength-based approach to this, if you get kids to look at the assets and how they help them in their daily life right now, what's something you did where impulsivity was really helpful to you? What's something you did before where being really hyper was good for you? You know, even if it's, I made people laugh when I told a joke, that's okay, too. You have to look at that and then, and then flip that coin over and say, when has that gotten in your way? And what did you do about it? What are you in charge of? How, how, are you, how can you take charge of that thing which can become a problem sometimes? That's what these kids need to know. I, I think it's unfortunate that so many of these kids, as I said earlier, get caught making mistakes and then they spend a lot of their time trying to cover their tracks. We should, uh, I want to really work hard to minimize that. Um, so at any rate, uh, how do you make it into a difference and not a disability? Uh, I think you look at the assets of it and talk, talk to kids about what they've done that has really used their personality profile uh, that, that goes along with having ADHD. Hope that's helpful. I think that is very helpful. Well, our next question now is from James, and he wants to know if you have any uh, suggestions for books or resources for kids on ADHD and, and on the different skills. And one of the things I'd like to mention is on the National Resource Center's page, our page helpforadhd.org, uh, if you were to go underneath Living with ADHD and the heading um, Parents and Parenting Children and Teens, the National Resource Center has several lists of suggested books. Uh, we call them our staff favorites that may also be helpful. But James is wondering what your suggestions would be. Uh, that's a good, um, that's a really good question. I don't have a list in front of me now, but I think books that have been very helpful with kids are, there's a book called How Does, I think it's How Does Your Engine Go or How Does My Engine, I can't remember. I'm sorry about that. Um, but I, I, I think books that help kids, um, I'm just looking up something while we're talking. I think you've given a, a good suggestion, Karen, but uh, how does my engine 
go, I think, is one. Uh, also, um, activities that go along with um, um, uh, the Brain Gym program are good. I think there are, there are printed materials for kids in that. Um, there is also um, uh, the, the program that uses um, Zones of regulation has uh, it's a school-based program that's used in a lot of schools, and it has uh, materials for kids to read about and learn about different styles of reacting and responding. I'm coming up a little short on that one, and I'm I'm um, sorry about that. But if something else comes to mind in the next few minutes, I'll tell you, or I'll think about it and post it somewhere on my website. All right. Well, thank you. That was kind of a question that put you a little bit on the spot there, clicking through the list. But again, in the meantime, while you're looking for some of those resources or, or thinking of some of them, we have our suggested staff favorites list underneath Parenting Children and Teens on our website, help4adhd.org. Well, I've got two questions that I'm going to put together. One is from a participant who was wondering if you have what some suggestions and ways to work with teachers about uh, a student who has ADHD who may need some assistance. And LaShonda has a question, um, how can mental health professionals assist parents who, with letting go of their fear of their children engaging in the least restrictive environments? Very often we have callers into the National Resource Center who want to know about having their child in a mainstream classroom as opposed to a contained classroom. So this is kind of a double question, some suggestions for teachers and some suggestions for parents. Well, it's it's a pretty broad it's a pretty broad question. I, I think I would go back to something I said earlier and and say what's the parent or teacher's perception of the condition, and that's really important because if parents uh, if, if parents see it as a as a as an insurmountable difficulty, then the advice or suggestions you give them are going to be different from parents who say, you know, yes, my older son was like this, I get it, I want to help my child. And the same thing is true for a teacher. If a teacher sees the ADHD-related behaviors as a disruption in his or her classroom, then the answer you give to that teacher is going to be a little bit different. Uh, Karen, is there anything in either of the questions that gives it more specificity? I'd like to respond more to that. Um, taking a look again at our questions, well, our participant was wondering what your specific experience was working with teachers, maybe some things that you personally uh, did to help students, help teachers, and also um, LaShonda didn't give us too many details, but the question again of the least restrictive environment, many times parents, obviously parents want the best environment for their student and professionals may say this would be a better environment, whereas parents tend to be more conservative and may gravitate towards, say, a contained classroom as opposed to a middle school where students change classes. Okay, that's helpful. Let me go back to the the question, the part about my work with uh, teachers. Uh, I mean, one of uh, there's kind of layers of intervention that I do if I'm doing consultation in a school. For the first thing I do is assess people's understanding of the condition and their experience with it, uh, the condition of ADHD, and give them formal didactic instruction in what it is and what it is not. Then the next level of intervention has to do with my uh, assessing people's attitudes or experiences with somebody, a teach a child, a parent. Uh, a friend, a boyfriend, a husband who's had ADHD and look at their kind of emotional reaction to it because that, that's, that's important. The third level of intervention that I uh, practice is uh, trying to help the kids engage themselves in their own learning. So uh, if a teacher is in front of a classroom and she's got something important to expose them to, um, one of the most effective techniques that I've had is to have teachers say to kids, I'm going to give you something to do in just a minute and it's going to require your ability to Focus your attention on this very important thing. I want you to show me on a scale of one to five by holding your fingers up how ready you are to focus your attention. And so kids are sitting there holding up five fingers, which means I'm not very ready, or one thumb up, meaning I'm really ready to
to do this. The teacher then has a very quick visual seeing which kids in the class are even raising their hand. And if one or two of them aren't, those are the kids she goes to next. And if a lot of the kids are raising their hand and they have a thumbs up, she knows that 99 or 100 percent of those kids are engaged in what she's talking about and are at least uh, connected to her. If you don't do things like that in the beginning of the lesson or beginning of an instruction and you just start to talk or show or do, you can miss a third of the kids in your classroom who are totally someplace else. So the idea of, of really dropping an anchor in their brains very early in activity is one of the simplest, easiest, and least expensive ways to make sure you've got kids uh, hooked. The other theme is helping helping them self-monitor during the task. Stop the action at, a, at an interesting uh, breakable point and say, how are you doing right now? How much energy are you using for this task? Is your brain still engaged? And get kids to do more self-monitoring so that they need to do less external monitoring. The LRE question really quickly. I think the question that helps me answer that is wh whether kids are in the right place is how what percentage of their day are they being successful interacting with their environment? And if it's 50 or 60 percent, that's no better than chance. And I think we need to think about making the environment more specialized. If they're not, if there's, if they're successful interacting with their environment 70 or 80 percent of the times, probably a good match. Otherwise, I think we need to get more specialized because the environment, although it looks less restrictive, may in fact be more restrictive because it's making too many sensory demands on kids. So therefore, a smaller class, a more closed environment might be more helpful for kids who have difficulty attending. Looks like we're coming down to the wire here, so I'll be quiet, Karen, let you take over. We are down to the wire. That's, uh, that was our last question. We have many questions that came in, and I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to all of them today. Uh, Dr. Schultz, I'd like to thank you for being with us and taking your time and offering your experience and your expertise to talk with other professionals about how to help young people with ADHD. For our audience members, we really hope you've enjoyed today's presentation. It has been recorded, and you can view it again in about 30 minutes following the same link you used today. And it will also be available on our website, Help for ADHD, if you click Ask the Expert. It will bring you to that in about two business days. So the quick way is to follow that link one more time, and in about two business days you can access it from our website. And if you have any other questions, you are welcome to contact us at 1-800-233-4050 or through our website again at help4adhd.org. And we hope that you'll take a moment to complete our survey. It'll appear on your screen as soon as the webcast en enters. Ends, I'm sorry. This helps us to better meet the needs of the ADHD community through your feedback. Our next web webcast is Wednesday, April 19th, and we are welcoming professional organizer Susan Pinsky, who will offer suggestions on organizing your work workspace or your home when you have ADHD or you have a family member who has ADHD. You can register now at help4adhd.org or on the CHAD website at chad.org slash asktheexpert. This has been a presentation of the National Resource Center on ADHD. Thank you very much for participating in our presentation, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. This now concludes our webcast. Thank you very much.